Hello and welcome to Enlightened Empaths, your community for the spiritually awakened. This week, Denise and I are bringing to you all our conversational chatty show where we hope you feel as though you're just sitting around the table with us, sipping your coffee and just chatting with some like-minded friends. We thought that for this episode, we would share with you some things I took away and learned from this really awesome conference I went on a couple of weeks ago on consciousness and what is happening to research and studies regarding our understanding of consciousness, non-local, local, how it all works. And so I just thought I'd start off by sharing with you guys some notes that I took throughout the workshop. And I have to say, Denise, there were some amazing people at this workshop. Yeah. One woman, she had, she was like a neurologist and a psychiatrist. I don't know. She had so many MDs, I couldn't even keep track. And she said, before I start my presentation, I want all of you busy, busily writing people with your notes to put your paper and pen away and just be here now and listen. See, I, I love was, that. I see, love I, that. Yes. I don't like that. You don't? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> see, because to me, that's the same as when you go to a concert and everyone's hiding behind their phone rather than enjoying the concert. I don't no. get that. I totally agree with you, and I and I applaud your philosophy and perspective, and I really respect her for saying that, and I did. I follow directions. I put my <laughs> notes away, but her presentation is the only one I can't share with you because I was so focused on being there now, I don't remember anything she said. Okay, and the other part of that is your note person. You like yes. having notes. You like having data. You like having that research, so... I don't think she should have made it a blanket statement. No, she was really good. And, and, I, and I mean, really, I agree with what you're saying. We should be more here now. But I wish I could share with you all what she said. But I honestly don't remember. I do know I enjoyed it. I remember sitting there and smiling. But this well, was a conference where there were um, Mark Stavish presented. He is the president of the Hermetics Institute. He's written a ton of books on magic and alchemy and hermeticism and all sorts of great stuff. I really love his work. So he was the main reason why I went up for this conference. But they also had all the men who started the remote viewing project. Not oh, wow. Russell. It wasn't Russell Targ and Hal Putoff. It was Dale Graff and Stephen Schwartz. And then they had a local remote viewer presenting as well. That was really exciting. The first man I got to see speak um, was a man named Paul Davids, who is a producer and writer in Hollywood. And he yeah. gave this really cool presentation about recognizing synchronicity in your life. And as I was listening to him, I thought, wow, like we really do need to think about those weird moments of coincidences and look at what is this? Why is this happening in my life? What does it mean? Is this a message from a loved one? Is this a message from my higher self? So he was talking about that. He mentioned random things like, for example, when he and his wife were looking to buy a new house, he was about to sign the papers that day. And you know how you have those moments like, holy cow, this is a really big purchase. Am I doing the right thing? Yes. So he leaves, he gets up out of his house office and goes into the kitchen to talk to his wife. He comes back in. He's like, all right, I'm going to print these papers and sign them. And there's a Monopoly house token on his desk. 
And he said, look, at this point, my wife and I were in our 60s. We don't have any Monopoly games in our house. There's no way this could have just appeared on my desk. And it wasn't there 10 minutes before. Wow. That's a great sign, though. Isn't it? Yeah. So they went ahead and bought the house, and, and he loved it. He talked about how um, his dad always carried this penny purse. Mm -hmm. And after his dad died, he kept finding pennies everywhere. He would pick up a book on the shelf and there'd be nothing there. And then he'd put the book back and he'd see a penny. And he said usually he started to track when these pennies appeared in his life and his sister's life. And it almost always these pennies appeared after something had happened in one of their lives where their parents would have been proud. Oh, I love that. And just as a reminder to people when they do find pennies or dimes or any coins, take a peek at the date because a lot of times it's significant for a birthday, an anniversary, a passing, a graduation. Um, and that's kind of a fun thing to do when you find those. Yeah, I think that's such a great idea. A story I've shared a lot. My former mother-in-law, Maggie, she passed away, uh, gosh, 12 years ago now. But she, before she died, she said, I will leave you quarters. So mm -hmm. we still find quarters in really cool ways. And when my middle daughter, Victoria, was graduating from kindergarten, it was just a year after Maggie had died. And I woke up that morning and I was just feeling sad that she wouldn't be there to see this, you know, momentous kindergarten graduation. But, you know, for Tori, it was. Right. Yeah. So I go into her bedroom to wake her up. And Tori is laying in, in her bed with the covers pulled up to her chin, which was very unusual for her. She kicks and moves a lot in her sleep. And there was a quarter on top of the blankets. And I did what you said. I looked at the date, and it was the date of her son's birthday year. Oh. Yeah, I thought that was so nice. Oh, I love he, that. The other thing I thought was cool, when all of these synchronicities happened in his life, maybe because he's a movie maker, but he took photos of them. Mm-hmm. And so in his presentation, he had photos of all these pennies in this little Monopoly house of everything that he had found. And I thought, you know, I don't do that. I, I recorded in my journal, but I'm going to start taking photos when great synchronicities happen like that. I've just started doing that rather than dragging it home. So for me, you know, the whole deal with all the nature stuff. And I was walking down by the river the other day and I was thinking about something I was trying to figure out. And I looked down and there was a perfect shell of a crayfish and it was pure white so it had been sun bleached and it, there was not even one little leg missing off this crayfish and it was just sitting on this rock like someone had put it down there like Denise is going to walk by here and find this and then when I went home and I looked it up in my animal books it was so so spot on but in the past I would have picked it up brought it home put and I said no just take a little picture of it with my, and that's the glory of having the, the phones is you always have a camera with you. Exactly. You I would have done the same thing. I, st I still have my whole box of the heart-shaped shells I found that one summer. But I think you're right. I, taking a photo is such a great idea. Denise Lynn really promotes that. She said, if you're trying to clear cut clutter and get rid of stuff, and she said, take a picture of it. You can keep that. You can hold it in your heart, but you don't need the physical thing. So I think we're all trying to work in that direction a little bit. I'm trying so hard to do that with my kids' artwork, and I can't let it go. And so many people have said, just take a photo of it, make a scrapbook of their artwork. It's not but the same. It's not the same. I have it all, all on the walls of my house. Oh, that's nice. Um, anyway, so then he said, 
he showed this picture and it was so cool. It's just his parents on the day they got engaged. And when his mother died, he and his sister decided to have this painting blown up, you know, for the, you know how people have like photo boards at people's wakes and things. Uh When they got this photo blown up and Denise, if I hadn't have seen this, I would have been like, yeah, keep dreaming, buddy. In between the mom and the dad, this is on their engagement day years before they had kids. When he blew up the photo, it's in, they're in front of, they're on stone, like a stone stoop in, in Brooklyn. Right. And between their two heads, you can see a perfect image of him as a baby and his sister as a baby. Oh, that just gave me willies. Yeah. Like, what, are, what does that even mean? And he said, like, when he said, I took it to Kinko's. It's not like I was photocopying this and a photo of me as a baby got merged onto the ink right. and a photo of my sister and... He and his sister are several years apart, so there aren't even photos, obviously, of the two of them as babies because, you know, there's quite a bit of separation between them. So I just wonder, what does that mean? Is that like the little baby souls are peeking in and saying, oh, we're going to come to you soon? Were their little faces clear, like as clear as the parents, or were they no, kind of foggy? No, it was, or? A little, it was a little blurry, and it, and it was just his face was in like the upper left corner of the parent between the parents and his sisters was in like the bottom right corner between the parents heads must have been cool to see that though it was it was really really neat so then he was talking about how he had a really cool life he got a full scholarship to princeton which is pretty amazing Mm -hmm. and he studied with dr humphrey osmond who helped run the whole mk ultra program with the cia yeah and this man, Paul Davids, volunteered for this program at Princeton. Now, it wasn't the whole Harvard thing that we've read about, but apparently Princeton did their own version of this, which I didn't know. And he said, being a part of this hypnosis program opened me up to all of this. His parents wanted him to be a doctor or a lawyer. That's what he was trained to be his entire life. Mm-hmm. And yet all he wanted to do was make monster movies. He was a big sci-fi kid. Right. And um, something about volunteering for this hypnosis program at Princeton changed him. He ended up studying in India, all over the world, and he has done amazing movies on like Jesus' missing years in India. He did a whole movie on Mother Mary and the sighting at Guadalupe. So it really changed his life. And another synchronicity I thought was really cool. In 1987, he saw a UFO with his family. And again, he had pictures of it and they were pretty good pictures. Mm-hmm. It was like the size of a car in the sky. Ooh. And he said his kids and his wife, they were all sitting there watching this UFO. And he said, I could tell that the UFO was aware of us the way it maneuvered through the trees. Well, soon after he saw this UFO, he was asked to write six scripts for the Star Wars series. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like, what are the odds? He, um, he talked about how he met um, Edgar Mitchell and, Go- and Gordon Cooper, and mm-hmm. they both told him, yes, there are UFOs. And he well, also... It does. He studied with uh, Monsignor Balencio, the chief exorcist at the Vatican at that time, when he was working on one of his films. And Monsignor Balencio said he believed in aliens. He said aliens aren't angels or demons, but they do exist. And his quote was... God wouldn't waste all this real estate. <laughs> I loved that. 
anyway, he told a bunch of other stories, but the last one I'll share that was my most favorite. He had this best friend growing up and they did everything together. They would recreate plays and movies and make little eight millimeter movies off of them. When they were 14, they won this national award and got to meet a producer in LA and they remain friends their whole lives, which you just don't see that much anymore. Right. So the man died. I think this was in 2017. And Paul Davids is looking through this scrapbook that he had created for his childhood friend of all their memories. And he gets to the movie poster that they had recreated of Zorro. And he said, it just made me cry because that brought back such great memories of playing Zorro and swords and all that fun little boy stuff that you do, you know? And he said, I just closed the scrapbook and I was missing him so much. And he said, I sat in my office and I said aloud, if you are okay, if you made it to the other side, please give me a sign. So nothing happened. And he gets in his car and he goes to the bank and he takes out a, you know, a couple of, mo- couple of bucks for cash. And he's counting out the 20s to make sure they gave him enough. On one of the $20 bills, Zorro is written next to the image of the White House on the back <laughs> of the $20 bill. And again, you know, he has photos. It's, it was really cool. He had photos of his friend writing Zorro to him in letters, and he compared them to the Zorro on the back of this $20 bill, and the, the handwriting matched. And what's even cooler is Zorro was written right next to the White House on the back of the $20 bill. Well, his best friend, his job, he was the head photographer for the Smithsonian, and he worked at the White House. And see, how we both know as mediums that this really happens. We've seen it happen. We've experienced it. We've talked to multitudes of people who have had things miraculously show up or manifest or and you can't ignore it when it's just so in your face you can't ignore it like that i love the zorro story by the way i wish i knew how they do it because that that other side of my brain wants to know how do they manipulate a pen to get that on there or how do they get into the bank to the money to get that zorro bill or was the Zorro bill already there and they're nudging them towards, oh, you need to go to the bank now and withdraw X amount of money? See, that's what I always wonder too. And that's pretty much what this whole conference was about. And, it, you know, a lot of what these people were saying, Denise, went whoop, right over my head. <laughs> I was dealing with some really smart people, you know, the type where I had to like Google some of the definitions of words they were saying. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I understood everything they said, but. I think they would answer that question by saying it's all consciousness. And once you don't have a body anymore, you're using non-local consciousness. And if someone is open, their mind is open, their belief system is open, you can pop a thought into someone's head, say at a bank, right? Zorro next to this White House. True. Very good point. I think that's how they'd answer that, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure. So I, ha- I did have, before I get to the remote viewing presentation, I did have an embarrassing moment. Uh-oh. I'm sure all of you are listening going, what, Samantha? Never. <laughs> so I go to the bathroom on one of the breaks, and as I go up to the sink to wash my hands, you know how you do when you look in your mirror, and is my makeup holding up? Is my hair frizzing out? 
they have this one fluorescent light bulb hanging over the sinks. So it makes everyone look like a scary ghost. Mm -hmm. And I went, yikes, this is bad lighting. And I laughed to the woman next to me who looked at me like, lady, you're at a spirituality conference. Like, could you please check your vanity at the door? <laughs> just, she looked at me like I had just said five swear words and she just kind of raised her eyebrows and walked like backed out of the bathroom. And that uh -oh. was PMH Atwater, the big near death experience writer. Oh gosh. Yeah. So I was going to introduce myself to her, but I decided after that. <laughs> oh, it wasn't she a big reason why you wanted to go? Yes. Yes. She was lovely. But uh, I, I don't think she would have said the same about me because she really did look at me like, you are so vain and shallow. I'm just going to back away from you non-spiritual person, you. <laughs> <clears throat> Which, okay, isn't very spiritual. No. Because it should just be, okay, well, if you're concerned about how your skin tone is, it doesn't <laughs> make you any less conscious. Well, and I, like, I would like to stand as a representative for all the people out there who care very much how they look and very much how their spirit is. You can it, have both. You can have both. And, it's, it, and I don't see it as vanity. It, I think there's a lot of underlying, there's a lot of reasons for that. Anyway, uh, but truly, I, I just feel like only you would do have that comment and have it be... <laughs> PMH Outwater. Oh my gosh. All right. So anyway, then I moved on to the remote viewing panel and I just sat in awe of these men, Dale Graff and Steve Schwartz. I can't tell you guys enough about them. I hope everyone Googles them and checks out their work. Dale Graff is the one who named the Stargate project. He now works almost exclusively on dream research. Ooh. And Denise, some of the stuff he was saying about dreams was just amazing. Steve Schwartz worked with him too. Um, he said it, when they were on the program with Russell Targ and Hal Putoff, they called it distant viewing. Mm -hmm. And so he helped create this program in 1968. He said that remote viewing goes back to the 1930s and it started in non-local conscious studies. And he said what he was primarily interested in when he worked on the Stargate project was the decline effect, which shows that the more people did psi exercises, like say Zenner cards, mm -hmm. the worse they got. Really? And yeah, and I thought that was so interesting. Now, Dale Graff said he thinks it's because the exercises like Zenner cards get boring after a while. Right. But I wonder if it's something like the phenomenon of beginner's luck. You know how like the first time you try something, often you do really well at it. And then when you try to repeat it, you don't do so well. And they say it's because when you're trying something new for the first time, you are activating your right brain. Mm -hmm. I'm open. I'm going to try this. If I screw up, who cares? I'd never said I was the best. The minute you do well at it, you activate the left brain, which is where you're thinking too much, you're focusing too much, you're trying too hard, and then that kills the momentum. And I wonder if that would explain the decline effect. I don't know. It makes sense. Well, apparently out of this decline effect is how they came up with remote viewing because they thought, well, 
instead of showing them like the same five cards over and over, why don't we just come up with different images and see if they can guess what the images are? And that's kind of how remote viewing was born. That's been fascinating just to be in the room with them. Oh my gosh, these people were so smart. It was, I just wanted to sit and talk to them for hours. So Stephen Schwartz tested 25,000 people with remote viewing to see if there was a personality profile. Mm -hmm. And what he discovered is that extreme right brain people tend to be better at this. That's not a shock. Right. Introverts and extroverts do it differently, but they get to the same place. Oh. Yeah, I thought that was really good. He said meditators do the best. People who practice a consistent meditative exercise daily do the best. And Denise, if I took away anything from this conference, it was meditate, meditate, meditate. Every single presenter went on and on and on about that from like a scientific basis. Right. He kept saying, you must develop discipline for sustained and maintained focus. I mean, I wrote this all over my notes, attain and sustain focused awareness. Which is exactly the same thing that whenever we've done mediumship training, they always yes. talk about the same exact thing. That's what we teach in our class about keeping the link of raising the vibration of sitting in the power. It's all the same stuff. Wow. It really is. It all comes down to that. And I'm going to come back to that when I get to Mark Stavish. Okay. So, <laughs> so just hold tight there. I will. <laughs> so... He said remote viewing is popular because it's, quote, a way in which people are opening to non-local consciousness in a way that can be verified. So check this out. His new deal, you can, you can look at all the work he's doing if you go to the schwartzreport.com. Mm -hmm. He is focusing on archaeological sites. I think this is such a fascinating idea, and he's written books on it. He is taking remote viewers to look at lost archaeological sites and having them remote view the past to find out where these sites are. And through this, he has found Cleopatra's palace, Anthony's palace, a lost ship of Christopher Columbus, and he has solved murders. Oh, wow, that's a good track record. I know. And I think the book he wrote about the archaeological stuff is called The Alexandria Project. That sounds familiar. Yeah, I really want to read it. It's on my Kindle. Who knows when I'll get to it, but I'm trying. Um, he said, everyone can do it to some degree. If you add meditation to it, you'll get quite good. So again, emphasizing the meditation. Mm -hmm. um, Dale Graff said, someone asked him, you know, why do you think remote viewing works for so many people? And he said, in my experience, it works because we gave participants permission to be psychic. Which goes back to what you and I say, that everybody can do this. Exactly. And that's what their research has proved. Now, Dale Graff, he started out at Wright-Patterson. And if you guys know me and my interest in UFO stuff, I'm fascinated by the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. I'm telling you, all those young people, they should not have stormed Roswell. They should have gone to Wright-Patterson. Anyway. So Dale Graff worked there doing trends and forecasting for the Air Force, and then they asked him to join Stargate. His main book is Tracks in Psychic Wilderness. And so what he's focused on now is researching consciousness through dreams. 
but he has also used remote viewing to track and catch fugitives. Ooh. Yeah. And he talked about all this stuff that I need to look up. Like he said, the first oldest recording of remote viewing is in an Oracle book by Herodotus, like in BC times. And the oldest crime solved by remote viewing happened in the 17th century. Well, that would actually make sense because if, if we're going to stand by the fact that we think everyone can do this, that everyone has that instinctual knowledge, that intuition, that psychic ability, whatever we want to label it, it would have been there then as well. And there wouldn't exactly. have been all the, the white noise of technology and it's been very quiet back in the 1700s. Probably easier to meditate. Exactly. <laughs> I wanted to ask them so many questions, but in this conference, if you wanted to ask a question, you had to get up out of your cozy seat, oh. walk towards the stage, and stand in front of a microphone. Oh. Do you think I could do that? No, I could not do that. But I wanted to ask them if I had the courage and confidence to do so. I wanted to say... I feel that more and more people are awakening to their psychic ability now than any other time before because the collective consciousness is waking up. Yes, I agree with that 100%. Yeah, and I wanted to see if they did too. and what Because that was the one thing I didn't hear a whole lot about until Mark Stavish's presentation was the collective conscious and how that affects and influences us. So was that the next one you went to? Yes. Yes. I just have two more quotes from my remote viewing presentation. Okay. <laughs> Dale Kraft said, the best way to remote view is the way that is best for you. I just love that. I they emphasize it- that over and over, that there's no right way, there's no wrong way. They kept saying that. You have to come at this in the way that is best for you. You can read all the books, you can take all the classes, but at the end of the day, you have to do what feels right for you and what works for you. And I think, you know, I was just thinking about when we were teaching the advanced class the other night, and we talked a tiny bit about remote viewing and that you may get something like you'll see it in your mind's eye, but it might also be that you hear a waterfall or you sense a big building or you, I mean, it can be any of the clairs are going to kick into that. It doesn't have to actually just be a visual. Well, do you want to know why the program was shut down? This is a really cool story. In the late 1970s, a Russian plane went missing in Africa. So they're, st- they're sitting in the Stargate you know, project. They get a phone call from the higher-ups in our government. Hey, a Russian plane just went missing in Africa. We need to find this before the Russians do because it will show us how advanced they are right now. So get your remote viewers on this. And Stephen Schwartz was like, I wanted to ask them, well, how did you know the plane went down? You know, like what? So they didn't know anything. So they get their best female remote viewer on there. And she describes, just like you're saying, like she describes this mountainous area. She writes down all this stuff. And Steve Schwartz and Dale Graff are like, yeah, but that's not telling us where Africa is a pretty big continent. Mm-hmm. So she gets kind of frustrated and she gets up to the big map they had put on the wall of Africa and she takes a thumbtack and she just jams it into this one area and she goes there. Okay. It's there. Wow. So Schwartz and Graf are like, oh, okay. So they find the latitude longitude points of that. They call it in to the guys. 
the government guys are like, um, that's 900 miles from where our helicopters are. There's in our last, you know, debriefing, it's nowhere near there. And Dale Graf's like, well, that's where you told us, you know, that's where she told us to look. You told us to report to you. We're just doing our job. So the government's like, all right, we'll send one helicopter out there. They do. The helicopter lands in this field right where she said there's nothing there. And the helicopter Mm -hmm. guys are looking at each other like, oh, these remote viewers. And then a native man comes walking out with a propeller. (gasps) And they follow him into the woods. They find the plane. Wow. So that's pretty amazing, right? Yes. I mean, they also found Patty Hearst with remote in this remote viewing project. They, they did so many phenomenal things. But anyway, the reason why the program was shut down is I think it was like 1980. Reagan just became president. They're interviewing Carter. You know, what's it like not being president? What's the coolest thing you ever saw as president? And he tells this story. Oh and for some my. reason, the government freaked out and shut it all down. Wow. Yeah. But somebody did get up and ask him, is it still shut down? And he, both of them said, you know, we don't know. We're not working there anymore, but we don't think so. He said, I don't think so either. Do you? No. He said that they do have reports that China, Russia, France, which I found interesting. I don't think of them as like a military force, but whatever. And Japan have remote viewers working for the government and so they said you know if china russia and japan do you can pretty much be sure we still do okay well this is a little tinfoil hat but not too much if you think about the countries where what just flashed in my mind is have you ever seen when they show these little three and four year olds playing guitars like they've played for 500 years because what they showed a little bit of interest and then they were trained day after day after day in these countries to be this is what you're going to do you're going to be a gymnast you're going to be an astrophysicist you're going to be because you showed some ability for that we're going to just make you the best that you can possibly be at that to the exclusion of other aspects of your life So if someone showed a natural propensity or ability with intuitiveness or psychic or remote viewing, doesn't it seem like they would also be kind of set aside and said, okay, this is what we're really going to work on with you? Yes. Yes. And I do believe that happened. I think that's even happened in here, but Mm -hmm. I do, I do believe that's happened in Russia and places like that. Um, Like China had a contest. I heard this on coast to coast. So I have no clue if this is true or not. But what I heard was that China had a contest years ago, like, what's your superpower? Mm-hmm. And there was some kid who could unlock safes with his mind. Ooh. And nobody knows where he is now. Oh, my. Yeah. But, okay, here's a quote that I wrote down just so everyone could understand the type of language I was dealing with at this conference. Somebody asked, what's the best way to remote view? And they answered, you have to suborn sensorial stimuli coming at you. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> Put it in English. <laughs> so that's how they talked the whole time. But here's something else I learned that I, I knew Pat Price was a Scientologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and Pat Price is like the most famous remote viewer on the Stargate project. I did not know this. Except for Russ Targ, every single person that they hired to remote view was a Scientologist. Oh my goodness. You're kidding me. No, I had no clue. 
And they, well, Dale Graff said, I think because of the auditing process Scientologists encourage you to go through, I think it, it trains you to dump your mind of, mm -hmm. okay, wait, let me look back at my notes, sensorial stimuli coming at you. <laughs> and that helps you to be more psychic. That's what he was theorizing. I don't know. I, I just thought that was interesting. And Stephen Schwartz said that working with Ingo Swan, who coined the term remote viewing, and was the first to work on the project as their resident psychic, he said he was such an interesting character. And he said, you know, he was bullied and made fun of his whole life because he was um, a homosexual as a very young kid. I mean, everyone's born that way. But as a, you know, as like a young teen, everybody knew. And so he mm -hmm. was picked on and bullied. So he's having dinner, Ingo Swan is, with Steve Schwartz one night. And he said to him, I'm going to create a cadre of military people who are going to be my psychics on my team. I'm going to be the boss. I'm going to get them their own badge. And he drew a picture of it. And Schwartz says, okay, how are you going to do this? And he said, I'm going to develop remote viewing. I'm going to teach it and use it to control them. And Steve Schwartz laughed and said, does that feel good to you, Ingo? And he said, well, I've been bullied my whole life. So yeah. Well, see, that's kind of creepy to me. Yeah, I thought so too. So I think this stuff, you know, you have to be careful. Oh, here's another example to someone asked, how does, because Dale Graff said the best remote viewing technique is the interview technique, where you have one person asking questions about a target and then the psychic tunes in. Mm -hmm. And he said it works because it creates a biocircuitry with common intention. Again, I don't know what that means. What is a biocircuitry? Do you know what that means? I don't know what it means, like being able to explain it, but... To me, it feels the same as tapping into that collective and like-minded people concentrating on the same thing is going to make it that much clearer. Yeah, no, no, I understand that. That makes a lot of sense. Now, here's something that Stephen Short said that I liked a lot. He said, don't get trapped in ritual, but in substance. Anytime you do intuitive work, don't get trapped in ritual, but in substance. I needed to hear that because sometimes I can get trapped in my ritual. Is my candle lit? Are my chakras open? Am I grounded? Do I have my crystal with me? Are my, you know, like, and he was just saying, don't get, don't get locked into that. Just focus on the substance of the information and the consciousness you're trying to connect with. I love that. Yeah. Because and he I think that that's a real limit for a lot of people. And I'm as guilty as anyone. I was driving down to the coast one day and I realized I'd left my juju bag on the counter, which is with my the rocks I hold in my hand, my cards were in there, my everything that I bring when I go to do readings in, in person. And I started thinking, I'm not going to be able to do this. I don't have my stuff with me. And I got there and I said, I don't have my, my cards today, so we'll just do this intuitively. It worked fine. I was able to do it without my little props. But it those give me comfort. That's a really good point that he made. I read a book about a psychic. He's a writer for Hay House, and I can never remember his name or the book that I read. But it's about his life story. He started off reading the tarot cards, and he moved on from there to doing one of those psychic hotline things, you know, where people call like a 1-900 mm -hmm. number. And then he started doing tarot readings in person. And he started getting really big. And he was flown out to Los Angeles to do like a big reading. I think it was for celebrities or something. He's so nervous. He gets on the plane. He goes, he's stepping off the plane in LAX and realizes he left his tarot cards at home. 
Can you imagine you're a tarot reader? And I don't know about you, but my cards are sacred. Like they're in a special bag and I love how they're all used and scratched and bent. I don't like new decks, you know? Mm -hmm. So he's thinking the same thing. Like I can't just go to Barnes and Noble and buy a new tarot deck. And the people are waiting to pick them up and take them to do these readings. Anyway, he did the readings without the cards and that's how he discovered he had mediumship abilities. I don't think he would have if he had the cards with him because it, you know, he was he would have been trapped in that ritual. It's a tool. The cards are a tool. The pendulum is a tool. The whatever, you know, any, any form of divination, it's a tool. But I, I agree with what that man said, that we can become so dependent on the tool or on the process or on the ritual that we get cloudy in our own minds as to what we're actually connecting with. I think it weakens the link sometimes. Yeah, I do too. He did give a really great exercise that I thought everybody could try. He said, tune into a picture that doesn't exist. He said, for example, project your consciousness seven days into the future or one day into the future and ask to see the picture that will be on the front page of your newspaper and draw it, write it down, you know, remote view it, see everything you feel, sense, hear, taste, and then get your newspaper the next day or three days, whatever your target date was and see how close you are. I thought that was a great exercise that everyone can do. Mm-hmm. He said, police are getting more comfortable working with psychics as their remote viewing research is showing that this actually works. And he said, they're getting so comfortable with it that the state of Florida actually has regulations for police on how to work with psychics. Huh. Yeah. Oh, and then someone in the audience got up and asked, isn't this just quantum physics? And that's not how they asked it, Denise. They asked it with a whole lot of other four-syllable words thrown in. But <laughs> basically, that's what they were asking. Isn't this, doesn't this all just come down to quantum physics? And Dale Kraft answered him in that science language. So I don't really understand how he responded to him. But they're both physicists, so they were, you know, in hog heaven t- talking to each other. But what I understood Dale Kraft to be saying, he said, precognition that is the biggest stumbling block to quantum physics explaining this. He said, we don't have an explanation for precognition. What we do have is reams and reams and reams of study proving that it works. And he said the skeptics hate it because the skeptics are always saying psychic stuff is BS because it can't be repeated in laboratory settings. And he said, all we have is evidence of us successfully repeating this in laboratory settings. But they can't explain it. They can't explain what it is or how it is or how it works. I love that. I love that there's still a mystery to be solved there. I I just think sometimes when we explain things with science, we take the magic out of it sometimes. Oh, I agree. So um, then Mark Stavish got on to talk about mainly his latest book, Egregores, which I also have on my Kindle, which I have also only half read. My poor neglected Kindle. But if you guys love to study stuff about magic and the collective consciousness, I highly recommend you check out Egregores. It is this concept that basically advertising is magic. Oh, well, that, I, need, I need more on that. Okay, so he said anything that is repetitively thought about by more than one person becomes a thought form. So egregore is like a fancy word for thought form. Okay. 
And so he, he was saying, like, um, the American flag is an egregore because when you and I look at the American flag, we see or feel a sense of peace, pride, patriotism. When someone in another country sees the American flag, they're going to experience a different kind of egregore. Mm -hmm. depending on what the country is, but it is still an example of an egregore. When we see the Nike swoosh symbol, what's the first thing that pops into your head? Victory, athletes, success, competition. All of those things are egregores, and as a whole, they are influencing us. He said that all magic comes down to consciousness, energy, and matter. And he said, the company you keep affects the outcome of your life. The people we associate with determine our experiences and our interpretation of those experiences. So your family unit is an egregore. Does that make sense, though? It does, because that whole thing where they'll say you're the compilation of the five people you spend the most time with. Yes. Yes. He actually mentioned that quote. Yes. So he was saying that the collective consciousness can exhibit control over our energy. And he talked a lot about how awareness and caution are essential, along with intuition and understanding the emotional state of yourself and the people around you. And he said, concentration is the key to everything. He also said, things happen because you introduce an element of instability. So the universe will always balance itself but it will never go back to the way it was. And he told a scary story about that. He said, there's no guarantee of safety in the world of the paranormal. And he had a friend who is a physicist and an occultist. And he called Mark Stavish and said, I did something. I did a magical incantation and it went wrong. And I did it wrong and I'm scared. A week later, he was diagnosed with colon cancer. And he called Mark and asked him to come to his house and give him an exorcism. And I don't know, Mark Stavish thinks that he actually got this colon cancer because of something he did magically wrong. I just thought that was kind of scary. He said, diseases of the blood, bone, and obesity run very high in occultist and mediums. And he said, it's because if you think about it, to do any occult work, or to do any mediumship work, you have to exhibit passive energy. So you're sitting a lot of the time. You're not active. You're just allowing energy to come into you, to come around you, to come closer. And so he said in order to be a successful medium or a safe, successful occultist, and I just want to make it clear, those two are very different things. Yes. He just mentioned those together in the same sentence. He said, you have to stay active, grounded, watch what you eat, and just as important, watch the company you keep. He said, everybody who's interested in studying consciousness, anything to do with the paranormal, psychic abilities, needs to have a phenomenon buddy. I like that term. Yes. He said it helps you to stay sane and grounded, and you must trust them with your life. He said, traditionally, this role was the teacher. But now it can just be a friend who you trust who's interested in this work as well. And he said psychic work has been proven to be easier in a group. I do agree with that. Right. I do too. So yeah, but he kept going back to this idea that advertising is a magical ritual. And you know what it reminded me of, Denise? And I wonder if you've ever had anything like this happen. 
I remember years ago sitting in doctor's offices, flipping through People Magazine and Us Weekly or whatever those things are called, and you'd see all these pictures of these celebrities in these skinny leggings and like a crop top and then these giant furry Ugg boots. And I used to tell everyone they should call those ugly boots, not Ugg boots. Like those are the most hideous things I've ever seen in my life. Look at these beautiful young celebrities and they're wearing these nasty things on their feet. What the hell are they thinking? Flash forward two years later, what's on my Christmas list? <laughs> I mean, really, have you ever done something like that? Yes. <laughs> and doesn't it make you think, am I a victim of an egregore? Now, I don't think Ugg boots are awful, at obviously, anymore, so victim is a strong word. But do you know what I mean? I think it worked on me. Mm-hmm. And even look at, remember all the things they had with the subliminal messages that are hidden in advertising that get you to buy things or want to drink more or to smoke cigarettes, whatever it might be. Oh, it's, it's all a head game. I think so. Oh yeah. Oh, oh. If my dad didn't have Alzheimer's, man, I'd have him on the show because he did so much research on that with his experience with marketing and advertising. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had whole teams committed to that. And I remember him saying, Look at every logo you can recognize in a blink of an eye. It will have no more than three colors. And Mm -hmm. there's a reason for that. And he would tell me the reason, which I can't remember right now. But everything is designed specifically with the way our mind works to get us to buy. Right. The Um, psychology of it. Yeah. He talked a lot about religion. And he said, religion is a great thing and it can be a not so great thing. So he was trying to say, like, these egregores aren't bad. It's not like you should be afraid of thought forms controlling you. He said, I have seen religion save people's lives, and I have seen religion ruin people's lives. He said, so all you have to do with this stuff is look at how much is it controlling me, how much is it influencing me. Well, and that fits with so many aspects of our lives. Yeah, that's very true. He said, the big three you need to keep in mind are the company you keep, the group mind or egregore you're engaging with on a daily, and the psychic contagion. I don't know what that means. Psychic contagion? Contagion. I don't know. But the group mind or egregore that you interact with on a daily basis, I did really get that, Denise. Haven't you ever worked in an office or a school with a lot of negative people and Mm -hmm. felt that negativity in your own heart? Yes. And then switch to like a different school or a different office with positive, uplifting people. And suddenly you're positive and uplifted. To take it even a step further is just setting boundaries or stepping away from even one or two toxic people in your life. How instantly it changes your outlook. And you realize, oh my gosh, I'm really not sad and negative and angry. It's so true. I always wonder, you know, what if this is a matrix? What if everything that we are living and seeing and experiencing really is just a projection of what's going on in our mind. Like I'll give you an example. Last week, Lily was, my dog Lily was really, really sick and I was driving up and back to Raleigh to get her into specialist and I was a wreck. I canceled all my readings, took it all off my website. I was just emotionally focused on Lily and I was just distraught over the thought of her being in pain. Denise, everybody I encountered that week was having a similar experience. I don't mean with a pet. Some, yes, with a pet. I mean, one of my friends lost her dog the same week I was dealing with Lily's illness. Um, 
But like I went in to get my hair cut and my hairstylist had double booked me. She's never done that. I've been going to her for nine years. And she was like, I'm so sorry. I am so freaked out and emotionally checked out this week. I don't know what's going on. I mean, do you think there's any truth to that, that the people we interact with are just reflections of what's going on inside of us? Oh, I think so. Yes. Or we're the reflection for them. See, and that's why Mark Stavish kept mentioning the company you keep, because yeah, mm -hmm. if we are a reflection of other people and we're hanging out with negative, victim-minded or passive-aggressive people, what does that say for us? I remember we talked about this before you went to the conference. Should I go? I don't know. I really want to go. I can't really. And we, you waffled and then finally you said, you know what? I'm going. I'm going to go for this one day. These are the people I want to see. And just gifting yourself with that, to be around like-minded people, to have this new vocabulary thrown at you, to listen to these experts. I think it doesn't matter what the conference is on or what the workshop is or what the adventure is. It's more about opening our minds to more and opening ourselves to a new opportunity to absorb somebody else's knowledge. Yeah. It, it changes your whole energetic field. It does. It really does. And I was thinking, you know, it takes a lot. I went all by myself, which I don't like to do anything by myself. I took time away from my kids, from work, you know, so just doing that is a lot for me for many reasons. And when I first got there and I was, everyone was there with groups and I actually heard a group of women go, who's that? We don't know her. No, we don't. I don't think she's part of, because this whole conference oh. was put on by this, you know, group. And I was like, yeah, y'all don't know me. Just to, I'm just going to sit here with my little notepad. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm like, and I see them, they're videoing the entire conference. Mm -hmm. And they have this big thing in the flyer, like this will be available for purchase, you know, in a couple of weeks. And I was thinking, man, Samantha, you could have just bought this DVD and saved yourself all this headache. But you know what, Denise? I don't think I would have paid attention if I was no. sitting in my home watching it the way I did sitting there with them. You're right. Something different, a different egregore is created when you're there in person. And it's the difference of seeing a live performance versus watching it on a screen. Yeah. Now, it did make me think, though, Denise, because you know how like you're asked to speak at conferences very rarely, but sometimes I'm asked to speak at conferences. I said yes to one in May. I don't know. Ooh. I don't know. There, the, Some of the people who asked questions, I was like, really? Are you on something right now? It just made me go, do I want to do this? But there was kind of a confrontational argument with Mark Stavish that I'd like to share with you. Okay. So at the end of his presentation, he says, are there any questions? Well, I had a thousand questions for him because if you look at his books and read any of them, you'll have a thousand questions for him too. And I got the feeling from his presentation that the wealth of knowledge that just trips off his tongue is so much that I wanted to know more. He kept mentioning, for example, Saturn and Mercury. He said, if you study nothing else about astrology, focus on Saturn and Mercury. He said, Saturn rules our activities, our soul's direction, and Mercury rules our communication. And if you know what's happening with Saturn and Mercury in your life and in your chart, you're ahead of the game. Again, I don't even know what that means. But that's interesting. He brought that into the conversation. Yes, that's what I mean. It had nothing to do with his talk. And he would like drop stuff in there like that, which just made me want more. So anyway, at the end of his presentation, he asks if there are any questions. And this woman got up and she said, 
you have said several times in your talk that the cosmos is not a democracy, that it is a hierarchy. And he did. He said that many times. And he mm -hmm. said, you know, some people have power, some people don't have power. There's a hierarchy with the animal kingdom, with the plant kingdom, with it, you know, on and on and on. And he said, yeah, I believe science has proven that we live in a hierarchy. And she said, well, I don't believe that. I believe that all consciousness is non-duality and that there is no, there is no hierarchy, that it is a democracy. And they kind of got into it a little bit. It was kind of interesting to see. And he kept arguing. He said, do you have more power than a homeless person? And she said, well, economically, yes. And he said, there you go. That's a hierarchy. And she said, but as an energetic being, I don't have more power than a homeless person. I just thought it was interesting because I could see both sides. That's a huge, huge hole to jump down. Yeah. I can see both sides as well. And I, but I think if I had to stand behind one of them, I would be more of the mindset of Mark Stavish. Stavish. I don't know. Stav no, I would go more in that direction because I do think there is a hierarchy and not in that someone is better or more entitled or more precious as a human on the planet. No, I don't, I don't believe that at all. So then I'm going back to the other side of the fence. But I think that there is very much a hierarchical system in all levels of organisms. If we want to go back to biology and genuses of animals and all of those things. Well, he kept mentioning terra firma and astral. And he said, you know, you have to have your feet on the ground, terra firma, reaching out to the astral. And I think what he was trying to say is that in the terra firma, here in this dimension of Earth, there is a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And if yes. you want to engage consciousness and have energy work with you, you have to admit and accept that there is a hierarchy. But that goes right back to when we're doing work to, to reach up. We always start any back to the ritual and routine. We get grounded. We get grounded here energetically before we lift our energy up to make the connection. Right, right. And then this young girl gets up. She couldn't have been more than 19. And she said, when I have phone sex with my boyfriend, am I creating an egregore? And that's when I just closed my book. And I was like, really? <laughs> this man has written, researched, and produced 32 books. You get an opportunity to ask him any question in the world. And you're going to ask him about phone sex. <laughs> I, I was wish, like, I'm I wish out. I had been a fly on the wall to see the look on your face when that. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I'll be in the bathroom talking to PMH Atwater about her foundation. I'm out. <laughs> oh, that was a good one. Oh, anyway, that was my conference experience. I really, really loved it. I am so, so glad you, you chose to share this with us because just the energy you're bringing into it, all of this depth of knowledge, plus I think it's great stuff for folks that are listening to explore and listen to. The one little thing I'd like to add, it's not about the conference, but I just want to put this out there that when the whole thing with Ellen DeGeneres and George W. Bush sitting together at the Cowboys game and her whole speech about it doesn't matter who you're sitting next to. It's about being kind. You don't have to believe what someone else believes. You don't have to drink their Kool-Aid. But, but being kind is the answer. And you and I have talked about this a lot. And this is kind of why we do the show, why we do the work we do is to try to raise this vibration. Didn't that just touch your heart when she did that? 
I, it really, I love Ellen DeGeneres and it really, really did. I shared a little clip of it on our Facebook page. So if you guys don't know what Denise is talking about, I think it was kind of all over the news though, but yeah. And she said, when I end every show saying, be kind, she said, I'm not saying be kind to people that believe like you do. I'm saying be kind to everyone. And, and, and I, it's so easy and it's not about big gestures. It's not about, uh, now let's jump back to the hierarchy for a minute. I have this level of comfort in my life so I can be kind and donate this or give this or help someone financially with that. That's not what we're talking about. This is being kind and being present for someone else, hearing what they have to say, honoring that they have as much right to be here as you do. And not feeling threatened. Right. That's what I think is at the heart of people having issues with other beliefs. I clearly I have friends from all over the gamut. You know, I mean, Deb is a pagan. I'm a Catholic. We have no issue discussing our religious beliefs because I a hundred percent respect her pagan beliefs, and she a hundred percent respects my Catholic beliefs. Mm -hmm. But I have many, many friends who have who are like really, really, really right, right, right conservative. I think you and I, we couldn't call ourselves conservative or liberal. I don't no. even think we follow into independent or libertarian. I don't know what the heck you and I are, but <laughs> I think we agree the same way, which is great. But I have a friend who's just very, 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 um, very, very conservative. And anytime I bring up something that is of a liberal mindset, he has to argue and defend his beliefs. And I'm like, that's fine. Like, I, I'm not trying to argue anything. You know, I'm, all I'm saying is I think everyone has the right to get married. Like what, you know, right. and what I realized through all of those discussions is it's not that he's trying to say, you're such an idiot for being so nice to everyone. He's really just pounding his chest, trying to say, I'm right. And I'm so terrified that I'm not. Oh, that's very, very well said. Is it? I don't know, yes. but, but oh, that's okay. what I think is at the heart of anyone who can't do an Ellen DeGeneres is they have to put themselves in this little box and only allow people in who think like they do because they're afraid to stretch their mind. Anytime we stretch our mind, we have to change ourselves. And I think we're all afraid of change. And I think we're all afraid of being wrong. But you just nailed it. It's all it's the same reason that brought you to going to that conference and stepping out of your comfort zone. You had to stretch your limitations, stretch your mind, open up to these new beliefs, open up, even though you've read these authors, you've followed them, you've read, the, you've watched the documentaries, being there present in that energy allowed you to open up to more than what you had before you got there. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's really one of the whole points of us doing this podcast is encouraging people to stretch their minds because I think as empaths, very often we do tend to cocoon. Mm -hmm. It's a way to keep ourselves safe and protected from feeling everyone else's stuff. But if we can learn to, okay, let me look back up my notes, focus, what was it? Attain and sustain attention, awareness, focus. <laughs> I don't even know what that really means. It's just another word for concentrate. Then we can actually protect ourselves and move beyond our comfort zone stretch. We don't have to tell any of our listeners to be kind to everyone because we've heard they from are. so many. They yeah. already are. Right. But one thing I, I know I struggle with sometimes is when I see someone who isn't kind to everyone, 
I do have a hard time feeling kindness towards them. And I agree. Watching Ellen DeGeneres say what she said reminds me that everybody does deserve my kindness, mm-hmm. your kindness, our kindness. I truly believe that that's the answer. I, I think John Lennon nailed it years ago. Love is the answer. Love is the answer. Oh, so one last thing. So as I'm coming out of Mark Stavish's presentation, he I bumped right into him. So <gasps> embarrassing moment number two. And I was like, oh, I, Mr. Stavish, I said, thank you so much for your presentation. And he said, oh, you're welcome. And I said, you handled that really well at the end there. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, you know, the weirdness, the phone sex thing. And, and he was like, oh, like he had no idea what I was talking about. Like that didn't even phase him. Mm-hmm. If I was standing on a stage and somebody asked me that, I guess it's the Catholic girl in me, but I would have blushed beet red (laughs) and been like, I know not of what you speak. (laughs) Anyway, so I said, um, you did really well with that weirdness. Thank you so much. Um, I'm such a fan of your work. And I said, I first heard you on Coast to Coast and then I heard you on um, higher, Higher Side Chats and and since then, I've just been pouring through so many of your books. And he goes, oh, my God, you're like an actual fan. I oh. hate to be called a fan, but oh. that's okay. Yeah. Was like, anytime I'm in, like, New York City or, like, something, I never carry a camera or, you know, I just, I don't like being that person. I've, I've mm-hmm. bumped into celebrities. I never bother them. I don't know. Don't you hate being that person? Like, yeah. I'm a fan. But I guess I am. I don't know. So I said, yeah, I guess I am. And he goes, well, then you need a selfie. <gasps> I was like, okay. Again, I never would have gone up to anybody and said, can I have a picture with you? But, wow. Um, so yeah, and, and guess who he asked to take the picture? Who? The phone sex girl. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it was the bathroom lady. <laughs> Pammy Catwater, no. She would have been like, oh, this girl again? Now she's taking a selfie? <laughs> So yeah, so I posted a picture of me and Mark Stavish on my Instagram account if anyone wants to see who he is. That is so, so cool. (laughs) Well, thank you guys for listening to me ramble on about my conference experience. We hope you guys get some time to yourselves this year at some point to sneak off to a conference of your own because it really is such a great way as Denise said, to expand out of your comfort zone and to stretch and to meet some wonderful like-minded people and some wonderful non-like-minded people and just stretch and grow our own consciousness. So I I hope this has inspired someone to give it a try and show up by your damn self. I did it. And we had a two-hour lunch break and I sat by myself for two hours and it was awesome. I actually liked it a lot. Congratulations. That's big. Now you can go to anything you want to go to. That's right. I am free. Non-local consciousness, here I come. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we hope you guys have a great, wonderful, happy week. Please tune in next week. We're going to have some awesome shows coming up for you and hopefully a spooky show too now that we're well into Halloween season. In the future, if you want to send in a question for one of our upcoming Community Connection show, you can email us, enlightenedempaths at gmail.com, or you can message us on Facebook, Enlightened Empaths. I do ask that you please continue to keep my sweet Lily in your prayers as we try to figure out what's happening with her health. And I thank you guys so much, everyone that posted on Facebook and Instagram, that you're praying and sending her Reiki. It is truly helping and working. So my heart of gratitude goes out to you all for that. 
Also, if you have time, please leave us a review on iTunes podcast. It helps other people to find us. In the meantime, we hope you always remember to show up, do great work, and share your light. Take care.